Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I never imagined myself as a single mom. When my husband Paul and I talked about having kids, it was together, a two-parent family, like what we each grew up in. But then Paul got sick, and it was terminal. Together, we did something that I'd never have expected. We decided to have a baby, even though we knew Paul wouldn't be there to raise her or to parent with me. Our baby is now six. She has her dad's sparkly, mischievous eyes. And our little family is me and Katie now, plus a constellation of people who love and support us, like extended family and friends and neighbors. During the early pandemic, when everything shut down, my brother-in-law and his wife even moved in to be together and help. Paul's family, Katie's family, our family. It's not a traditional family, but non-traditional is actually the norm these days. Back in the 1960s, three-quarters of children in the U.S. lived in homes with two heterosexual parents on their first marriage. Now, less than half do. And yet, this notion of an ideal family structure lives on, deeply embedded in cultural narratives, our workplaces, our policies. For those of us who grew up thinking that there's one right way to have a family, the loss of that possibility can be painful and disorienting there aren't as many cultural maps for the path less traveled. There's also still this belief that if you aren't able to achieve that ideal family, then you and your family, if you have one, are different and somehow less. As a single mom, I come up against that. In this episode, let's explore. What happens when we bust the myth of the ideal nuclear family? How can we as a society embrace new family structures in all their diversity? and what kinds of beautiful possibilities arise when we do. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. When Paul and I considered expanding our family even as he was dying, it seemed kind of crazy at first. I worried that other people might think it was wrong to bring a child into the world without a dad and whether I was equipped to parent all on my own. But one person's writing expanded my way of thinking. It transformed my sense of what was possible. Lucy, what a pleasure it is to meet you. That's Andrew Solomon. He's a writer and lecturer and activist. I read Andrew's momentous book, Far From the Tree, while Paul and I were deciding whether to try to get pregnant. Andrew's life's work is about understanding identity, and the family relationships and cultural structures that either support or constrain our abilities to flourish as our true selves. Far From the Tree is about children and parents and what happens when they have to traverse differences in identity, be it through disability, prodigy, gender identity, or even when the child carries out a serious crime. It's full of stories of parents who are brave because of love, many of whom find great meaning in circumstances they might never have wished for. Andrew's writing totally changed my view of parenting. Thanks so much for doing this with me today. And I 
I've just wanted to thank you for so long because like I had said to you, I'm not kidding when I say your work made me feel brave enough to have Katie. I mean, it's like, it's going to make me cry now. It really, you really said so forcefully that people can go through these extraordinarily hard things and love each other through them. And I felt like I read far from the tree in a practical sense to see like, if something very unexpected happens, can I be prepared for it practically to do it on my own? And then the upshot was like, none of these families was prepared for it. And that's not the point. And, and they loved each other and love makes the impossible possible. And so, um, I suddenly thought like, I am prepared to do that. Um, I think I thought now I'm just a mom who yells at my first grader all the time, but it's thanks to you. <laughs> so anyway, I am so happy to meet you. I'm just thrilled. So thank you. The feeling is entirely mutual, Ben. Thank you very much. For me, Andrew's book felt like the right message at the right time. When Paul was sick, the future was uncertain. The only constant was love. But it turns out that a capacity to love, not a capacity to be certain, is what makes parenting possible for anyone. Andrew's exploration of family relationships led him to a new project that breaks open our ideas about what family even means. It's called New Family Values, a storytelling project that began with an audio series on Audible, which will lead into his next book. Andrew interviews dozens of non-traditional families, gay and multi-parent families, adoptive and foster families, families built through assisted reproduction, single-parent-headed families, and child-free families. What were some of the families you talked with who were most inspiring to you? I worked in the foster care system and was really horrified to realize how incredibly racist and classist that system is. And I met particularly women who had lost children into the foster care system who, uh, you know, had essentially been accused of not being very good parents and therefore had lost their children and had done extraordinary things to try to get their children back. So I was struck by the courage that a lot of these women had shown in the fight they had made, you know, and often, I mean, they're required to take, I don't know, parenting classes and anger management classes and all these other classes. Uh, taking those classes, if you have a job, is really difficult. They're offered usually during times when you very well might be working. And people had allowed themselves to slip into relative poverty, even greater poverty than they might have been in in the first place, in a quest to regain their children. And I was sort of humbled by that. And then I was interested the state in the United States, which has the largest proportion of gay people bringing up families, in other words, in which within the gay population, the largest number of people are bringing up children rather than families are bringing up children. I had assumed would be New York or California. It's actually Mississippi. Um, and I went down to Mississippi and talked to people there. And in many instances, children especially if they exhibited any kind of slightly gender variant behavior, you know, masculine little girls or effeminate little boys um, were thrown out of their houses. And there were these other people who just mostly gay people, older gay people who took them in and built family with those people. So the stories that were most 
you know, inspiring to me were the ones where people managed to do this despite enormous obstacles. What were the through lines that you saw about family or about relationship? Um, and, and along, like, compared also to the mainstream model, people who had it easier. I think the through lines were, you know, the sort of obvious things. I mean, there was a through line of love um, that people love their children. You know, we all hear stories of terrible abuse, but in my experience, most people love their children. They don't always act well toward them and they don't always know what they're doing, but they tend to love them. And so that was a real through line. And I met a lot of people who felt that they had been able to form the families they did because they live right now. And so, you know, even when I was interviewing single parents, the sort of middle class um, or upper class people who were able to be single parents um, and hold their heads high in communities that would once have been horrified by that behavior. There was a feeling of freedom and a feeling of possibility. You know, freedom shouldn't be contingent on whether other people will be horrified by what you do. But frequently it is. And so I felt like the the relief um, that people felt that their own lives were no longer horrifying in the way that they would have been. You know, that was great. Um, that was really, that was really a strong through line. I mean, the other through line, I guess, that was especially striking to me because it resonated with my own story is how much people long to have children. I did also write about child-free people and about the fact that not everyone is longing to have children and that we shouldn't universalize wanting to have children any more than we at one point um, did for certain groups say that they couldn't have children. But, but the depth of that yearning was very striking. For so many families, it's this moment in history that makes it possible to love, be loved, have children. I had a moment early in the process of contemplating this book that was very illuminating for me, which is that I was having dinner, John and I were having dinner with some old friends of mine, and I was explaining what I was planning to do, and I said, you know, uh, the, uh, the project is really predicated on the fact that my family was unimaginable 30 years ago, and now look at it, here it is. And my friend said, yes, but you realize our marriage was unimaginable 50 years ago, too. And they're an interracial couple. And I hadn't really thought about it. And I suddenly realized that it's true 50 years ago. I mean, it happened in the same way that it happened that gay people had children. But it was very rare, maybe a little more than 50 years ago. And in talking to them about it, I had the sense that you know, it seemed ludicrous, the idea that they would once have been unable to marry each other. And then I thought, well, I guess it's ludicrous that John and I wouldn't have been able to marry each other. And I don't know, I just, I just think the through line was, the through line, I guess, was a sense of the possible, a sense of the possible that didn't exist. And part of what I hope of this book and what everyone else is doing in this field is that 
the realm of the possible will continue to expand and to increase and that we are seeing only the beginning of something in which freedoms that we haven't yet even found language to conceptualize will seem as available to my children when they grow up as this has become to me. Being a single mom, I have noticed how much I internalize those outdated ideas of what's possible or normal. I'm really proud of myself as a mother, and yet there were several years as a single parent when my holiday card said, love Lucy and Katie. Happy holidays, love Lucy and Katie. Then when Katie was about three, she drew a family portrait, me and her, and I was able to see our little family through her eyes. Suddenly, it was so obvious up there on the preschool bulletin board. That's a family. Now Katie and I sign our cards, the Kalanithi family. I've often found wisdom in the way Katie thinks about the world. Kids can be so open to embracing the way things are, even if their reality is very different from other people's. But Andrew Solomon, as a kid, faced the flip side. Growing up in the 1960s, he struggled to reconcile being gay with his dream of having a family like the one he grew up in. You know, obviously, the American family has undergone this massive reformation in the recent decades based on civil rights advancements, women's rights, gay rights. And then you, your own life has tracked along with that. And so I've heard you say that you're a part of this bridge generation for LGBTQ families where the impossible became the possible But you saw that in real time. And so I'm really curious to ask you, as a child, what was your family like and what did you learn about family as a child? Well, it's interesting to me that I've become such an advocate for alternative forms of family because I grew up in a family that was in some ways as close to the traditional ideal as they get, which is not to say that I didn't have differences with my parents and arguments and, you know, competitiveness with my brother and so on and so forth. And eventually the issue of my being gay became a point of contention in my family, and that was very, very painful. But my parents were happily married. My father was um, a breadwinner who was quite successful. My mother was a stay-at-home mom who was incredibly attentive and deeply focused on us as children. We all had dinner as a family at least five nights a week. My parents usually went out twice um, in any given seven days. But other than that, we were together all the time. We spent time in New York City. We had a a little place in the country where we spent weekends and summers. It was was an incredibly stable, solid, um, and even joyful background to come from. Even from a young age, Andrew wanted to grow up to be a parent himself, to create a home like that, stable and full of joy. But marriage equality was decades away. So were IVF, surrogacy, and adoption by same-sex couples. It was inconceivable to him as a young gay person in the 60s and 70s that he might build a family, have children. Andrew and his mother were very close, but not even she could imagine a family for him. But she insisted and insisted that having children had been her greatest joy and that she believed it would be my greatest joy. And so the sense that I was going to be deprived of that was devastating to me, even though I was angry about the way it was put forward to me. She said, there's no, she said, you can't turn in the satisfaction of having children for some passing sexual fancies. She said, you, 
You don't understand having children is the most transformative experience there can be. And of course, it wasn't passing erotic fancies. It was my identity and who I was and how I related to the world and the question of not living a lie. And I mean, it was all much more complicated than that, which was the part of it that made me angry. But I had a very, to me, heartbreaking moment shortly after she died. I found a journal she had kept that she clearly intended to keep over the period when she was dying of cancer, when she was 58 um, and I was 27. And uh, in it, she had written um, on the back page, the things I look forward to, growing old with Howard, who was my father, seeing David have a family, who was my brother, seeing all the things Andrew will achieve in his writing life. And I thought, oh, it never, it never occurred to her that there might be this family. Over time, Andrew started to see the possibility of a family for himself, even if it didn't look like his family of origin or most of those around him. In Far From the Tree, you wrote this beautiful thing about a crucial turning point for your family life, where you said, I struggled for years with childlessness, and just when I reconciled myself to that sadness, I began to see its inverse hope. And I love that phrase, inverse hope, and I'm curious what brought that moment about for you where sadness turned upside down into hope? I remember when I was a year or two out of college and I was having dinner with a female friend who I was very close to, and we were talking about some of my identity struggles at a time when I hadn't talked about them with very many people. And Talcott said, um, you could be in a male couple and have children. There are people who do that. And then time went on, and I think I got over a lot of um, self-hatred and internalized homophobia. And I also began looking at other families, and I thought, different families have different things to give. And if I were to become a parent, um, I would become a parent in a way that's different from the way my parents were. But there are other things possible. You know, the only option isn't to recreate my childhood or to do nothing at all. Then at some point, I thought, well, if some gay people are doing this, and I had one friend in particular from college who was a few years older than I was who had um, already uh, trod this path. I thought, okay, Jamie managed to do it. I, I could do this. And it was the lifting of an enormous weight of sadness and an enormous sense of deprivation and the feeling that I was gonna miss out on the most meaningful experience in life had, you know, it felt like a hideous price to pay for who I was. And, but it hadn't really been clear to me until shortly before I did it, that I didn't have to pay that price. By that time, Andrew had met his partner, John, who later became his husband. John already had two biological children from being a sperm donor for friends. And Andrew and John decided to grow their family. It took a lot to get there. It started with a seemingly casual conversation with a friend. My friend Blaine in Texas and I had this conversation in which she said uh, she had just gotten divorced. And I said, are you feeling unhappy about the divorce? And she said, the only thing I'm sad about is um, not being 
a mother. That was something I desperately wanted. And I said in this rather lighthearted way, I said, well, you know, if you ever decided that you wanted to have a child, I think you'd be an amazing mother and I'd be proud to be the father. But it didn't really occur to me that that was something that would be taken seriously. And then she really sort of dwelt on it for a while without talking to me about it. We hadn't been in, even in touch that much. And then uh, she said to me, you know, I don't know if you were serious, but if you were, I'd like to do it. And I thought, I just, I just want to make this leap. After considering it deeply, Andrew and John and Blaine decided to bring a child into the world. Andrew and Blaine have a daughter, who is also named Blaine, and whom they parent together. You've written about the the moment when you first held your daughter, and you were the first person to hold her after she was born, and this is your daughter with Blaine, and you said you said something about the shock of it. it it's something like, um, I couldn't get my head around the fact that I was a father now, and it's almost like if you had told me that I'm still myself and somehow I'm also a shooting star. <laughs> and I love it so much, and I'm, do you remember that moment? I remember it incredibly vividly, um, of course. I mean, I should, I should perhaps, I should perhaps introduce that moment by saying that I was both incredibly excited and completely terrified of becoming a father. I felt like my parents did a really good job of it, and I didn't know whether I could do, you know, the things they did or as well as they did, and. The responsibility seemed huge, and I was still very nervous about what it would mean for a child to grow up with a gay dad. And then I was in that delivery room, and someone handed her to me, and someone, the doctor, handed her to me, and I looked down at her and I thought, just think, this person who I met 30 seconds ago is probably going to be one of the most important people in my life for the whole rest of my life, no matter how long I live. And I thought, and a weight kind of went away, that weight of thinking, I will never have children, none of this will ever happen. And I thought, you know, there are not that many really sharp dividing lines in one's life. I feel like the last sharp dividing line in my life had been that my mother died, and it had been predicated on my mourning and grief and even despair when that happened. And I thought, this is a dividing line, and it's not a plunge into grief. It's the opposite. This is the beginning of something that's going to be joyful and beautiful and wonderful. So Andrew and John formed a new kind of family, a beautiful, unique family. Blaine and Little Blaine are one part of it, and they live in Texas. John's biological children, Oliver and Lucy, live in Minnesota with their moms, Tammy and Laura. And then, Andrew and John decided to have another child in New York. Laura volunteered to be their surrogate using a donor's egg, and George was born. This is sort of a weird question, but what do you feel like is better um, about your family? Or like, what's something that's different that other people don't have if they have a more mainstream structure? I mean, I think our process of getting there was incredibly deliberate, and I think that there is an interesting, fulfilling piece to remembering what it took to plan it all. I mean, it's sort of like 
you know, some people move into an apartment and some people um, start digging a foundation to build their own house. And I felt like we had to dig out that foundation. And while it was harder than moving into an apartment, um, I feel like we designed what we really wanted. And I think that's been gratifying. Andrew has thought a lot about that, about the legal and cultural structures needed to support families like his, about the privilege required to build a family the way he did. It's interesting to me that both children in, from slightly different angles have become quite interested in politics. They're more aware than I thought they would be at this stage, and not because we've been preachy with them about it, but they're aware of politics and they're aware of the fact that families like ours, what is available to us and how many other people can form these families, all of these things are contingent on judicial decisions and congressional legislation and executive orders and, you know, all of the, the branches of government and what they, what they stand for. That's part of what drives his New Family Values project. Change can be risky and old structures are tough to change. Stories can help. I think I was aware that while we had been able to have the family we had, it had been contingent on a lot of things that many people didn't have. You know, we could afford to hire a surrogate. I was in a career field in which my having a weird family wasn't going to cause me to lose my work. I wasn't going to lose housing over it. Um, it wasn't going to have many of the kinds of impact that embarking on something like this can have for people. And I felt like if I had that privilege, it was important to try to make such privilege available to the widest possible range of people. As with all storytelling, language matters. And here it needs to catch up to family diversity. In English, we have a limited set of words for relatedness. Father, mother, uncle, aunt, sibling, cousin. But what about for the relationship with a biological parent, like Andrew's husband, John, for Oliver and Lucy? It's a poverty of the English language that we have so few words to describe relatedness. You know, we could be called uncle something, I guess. When Oliver was little, um, uh, Tammy and Laura tried to get him to call John donor dad. Oliver, not having any idea what was going on when he was three or four, started calling him Donut Dad, um, which, was, which was kind of wonderful. But, uh, I mean, for George and for Blaine, I feel deeply involved in their lives. And um, there's all this decision-making that goes on. And the relationship we have with Oliver and Lucy is full of love, but it's not that relationship. It's a relationship for which we have no word. And, you know, it's bizarre that we have no word for it. I mean, we've only had computers in our daily lives for whatever it is, 30 years. And there are about a thousand words that we all know and use. And we say, it's going to take me a while to download that idea. Or we say, I don't have the bandwidth to focus on that. We even use the language metaphorically. And there are these new kinds of human relationships. And what can we say about them? Oh, so you're like an uncle. That's about as close as anyone can get to describing it. What you're saying now reminds me of this, where you've said just the way that species diversity, you know, is important for the world's ecology, 
family diversity is important among human society, and it expands the possible for love and kindness everywhere. And it reverberates back into what's possible for individuals, right, to determine the course of their own lives based on who they are. I certainly believe that the diversity of love makes for a better world. And I just look at a society in which loneliness is epidemic. What is it that we're accomplishing by denying anyone the chance to love other people in the way that they want to? I'm curious how new family values has helped you understand your own family differently or become a different kind of parent? I mean, I think doing this project has made me more aware of um, the luck that given who I am, I was born when I was. Not that there wouldn't have been some nice things about being born even later. So it's, it's had that effect of making me feel grateful. And I think, you know, when I lose my temper with one of my children or when I try to force them to conform to what I think are correct moral standards or argue about table manners or whatever it may be, um, you know, from the, the sort of um, insignificant to the profound, um, I have that sense of luckiness that's with me a lot of the time after a period in my life when I, I didn't feel so lucky. So that's one uh, big piece of it. And I also think it's, you know, the last book was about the diversity of people who had differences and disabilities and so on and so forth. And this one bookends it with this diversity of family. And I think doing the two of them has made me a more tolerant person. And, you know, it's just amazing how many different things work, um, how many different ways there are to be a parent or to be a child or to structure your life. And the more of this research I've done, the more I think anything can work and that the, the goal, the objective should be always to be open to that and to try not to be judgmental. I, I just love seeing I love seeing how many approaches there are. It's it's unbelievably liberating. I guess that's what I'd say. It's been extremely liberating. I grew up in a household that was very conventional, and my view of the world is no longer very conventional. So many different kinds of families just work. It's interesting to reflect on how A diversity of families makes the world better for everyone, even in terms of logistics and policies. Like, I feel sort of like an extreme user of the workplace and the school. And if I say that I can't make a meeting at 6 p.m., it's because there is no family dinner if I am not there. But at the same time, I don't think any family should have to have somebody missing from family dinner at 6 p.m. necessarily, you know? And so 
The constraints that make things hard for this multiplicity of families, many of them also make things hard for mainstream model families too, or working parents or whatever it might be. You know, I mean, just expansiveness broadly, I think, helps everybody. Well, I think one of the things that became very clear as I worked on the book is that the great movements of the 20th century undergird all of this. And the first one was the women's movement and particularly second wave feminism. And then the um, uh, the civil rights movement for racial equality and the Lovings saying, the government can't tell us not to marry each other because we're different races. It's not up to the government, it's up to us. And I think those two movements are entirely the basis of um, all of what I'm talking about and all of what I'm thinking about. None of it could have happened without them. And when you describe that experience of saying you can't make the six o'clock meeting, I would like to think that it's the sort of twin arms of feminism that have on the one hand put you in a position in which you have a six o'clock meeting rather than only being at home. And on the other hand, would have empowered you to say, I actually won't be able to go to a meeting at that time. Sure. And I think the point there is that we're sort of halfway there or partway there in all of these, right? Like that's why, that's why you're doing your project is because we are not there. But we can, we're squinting toward it the same way that you squinted toward a family when you were a young gay man, you know? Absolutely. And, and I hope it will continue to make, you know, real and steady progress. And I hope people will understand that that progress isn't just about, it isn't just about equality, it's about something more than equality, which you've just said, about the way in which this diversity actually makes a richer, more interesting world. It's not simply saying, okay, we want everyone to have the same prerogatives, though we do want everyone to have the same choices and options and decisions to make about what they do. It's that we want to understand that when we make those available, the choices people make will actually expand the realm of what's possible. I don't know what my children will want, you know, but I'd like to think that by opening up possibilities, it will make whatever it is that they want to do in whatever area of their life it is they want to do it a little bit easier than it would have been without all this. I love Andrew's work because so much of it is about how to make the impossible possible in family relationships, during hardship, through discrimination. He always seems to come back to the same thing, that love is the engine of transformation, that love is what makes people bravest, and it can get us closer to joy than we ever imagined. Building a family, no matter what shape that family takes, requires love and courage, and at best, it begets more of both. Belonging makes us stronger, and that begins with family. We owe it to each other to see the value in all kinds of families and build a world where they can all flourish. In every episode of Gravity, we have a poem. It helps me really let in new ways of thinking and feeling about life in all of its dimensions. This episode's poem is written and read by Ada Limone. It's called The Raincoat, and in honor of Andrew, it's about a parent loving a child. When the doctor suggested surgery and a brace for all my youngest years, My parents scrambled to take me to massage therapy, deep tissue work, osteopathy, 
and soon my crooked spine unspooled a bit. I could breathe again and move more in a body unclouded by pain. My mom would tell me to sing songs to her the whole 45-minute drive to Middle Two Rock Road and 45 minutes back from physical therapy. She'd say that even my voice sounded unfettered by my spine afterward. So I sang and sang, because I thought she liked it. I never asked her what she gave up to drive me, or how her day was before this chore. Today, at her age, I was driving myself home from yet another spine appointment, singing along to some maudlin but solid song on the radio. I saw a mom take her raincoat off and give it to her young daughter when a storm took over the afternoon. My God, I thought. My whole life, I've been under her raincoat, thinking it was somehow a marvel that I never got wet. Thank you for joining Andrew Solomon and me in this episode of Gravity. Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley and Lindsay Cradwell with help from Taylor Williamson for Wonder Media Network. Original music is by Rachel Wardell. Rekha Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please take time to share Gravity with a friend and to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Before you go, there's another show I want to tell you about. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Follow Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts.